Hello and welcome. You're tuned in to the Agora Politics Podcast, where we're exploring frontiers in political theory by incorporating perspectives from a wide range of disciplines to confront our ever-novel circumstances. Today I'm speaking with Cody Moser. Cody is an evolutionary anthropologist, a self-described grad student in purgatory, and visiting grad student at Harvard's Department of Psychology's Music Lab. His primary research interests include the perceptual sciences and bioacoustics. In this conversation, we cover a wide array of topics, how technology is undermining the substrate culture that got us here, historical relativism versus universalism, the incel phenomenon, how metabolic rates affect the growth of cities, the internet and its effect on universities as the gatekeepers of scientific knowledge, elite overproduction, adaptationism and the Spaniards of San Marco, and a number of other areas. As you'll discover during our talk, Cody's writing is no less varied in terms of disciplines and topics he's covered, and he also has a deep grasp on the history and development of the field of anthropology. So without further ado, I give you Cody Moser. So, Littlefoot, can I call you Littlefoot or do you prefer Cody? You can call me Cody. That works. All right, Cody. Welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Alex Mershak, and uh, this is the Agora. Now, today we are going to talk about evolutionary anthropology and sort of get your take on what you think that approach, as well as your own personal uh, research interests, can contribute to our understanding of politics in the theme of this podcast. But first, Cody, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and what your interests are? Yeah, sure. So again, I'm Cody. My guess is a background. I am what you would call a, a grad student in purgatory. I just now finished my program at Texas A&M in their anthropology department. And uh, currently I'm waiting to hear back from a few grad schools that I applied to for this fall. Mm-hmm. My background, originally I studied primate behavior for a long time. I was always interested in uh, things like language evolution from a primate perspective and uh, behavioral and social evolution from primates. Um, And after a little while, I started to realize that the reason why I was asking these questions was because I was interested in the human implications for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So lately I've been researching a lot more into uh, cultural evolution and evolutionary psychology. I'm technically a visiting grad student at Harvard's Department of Psychology in the Music Lab, and I, I, I do research in a large number of things. So, so I could tell from reading what you've written online, your, your blog, which, by the way, is over at culturologies.wordpress.com. If anyone wants to go check out his writing, it's actually very, quite prolific and uh, quite varied as well in terms of the topics you cover. But I did have some questions here. So you cite as your research interests the perceptual sciences and, and bioacoustics, which I, I assume is uh, why you're over at the music school there. Can you just tell us a little bit about what those fields are? Yeah, sure. So, so I started studying those because I, w- I was pretty interested in primate communication. I, I, I've always been interested in those things that 
uh, make humans unique. And uh, one of the ways that you study that is you look at the ways that other animals are like us so that you can specifically find ways that we're different. So, so for like a long time, I was studying uh, weird things like uh, tarsiers, which are these primates that communicate at a frequency that humans can't even hear. I was working with lemurs and a few other things. But lately, I've started to move into phonetics. So overall, just human speech, human speech patterns, and starting to hone in on universals in speech and music, uh, what those might look like for human beings and what exactly our psychology might require our speech and song systems to look like. Okay. So you, you sort of taking the, the universals in linguistics that, are, that exist both in humans and across animal species and trying to derive evolutionary psych- psychological understanding from that. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's completely correct. And can you tell me a little bit about where that might intersect with your interest in semiotics? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a, there is a lot there. <laughs> so my, my interest in semiotics is not necessarily as quantitative as some of the bioacoustic stuff I've been in, uh, researching. But a big thing for human language is whether or not there's a semiotic component to it. By semiotic, what we mean is a symbol system. One of the things that makes humans unique is just the extent to which we're able to symbolize our thought. Everything in language is a representation of something else. You know, when I say something like apple, yeah, this sheer sound apple does not sound like an apple. But obviously that's the mental imagery that gets evoked uh, when you say apple. It's pretty interesting because many primate species do have kind of sign-keeping systems. Even lemurs, they have differences between when they see a hawk and when they see a ground predator. They have different calls for that. But, but humans take it to such an extent that it's, that, it's, that it's hard to say that our semiotic system is uh, not unique. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously the, the biggest reference that would be familiar to most of the gen- general audience on this would be something like, like Chomsky and grammar in terms of sort of fundamental aspects of linguistics that are universal. And even though they are necessarily symbolic, I mean, all of our language is a metaphor in some sense. They tend to be, you know, there, there tend to be patterns that you can map out mathematically across, across cultures, across languages, and these, these appear to be universal. Do you think that there are human universals? Oh, yeah, I'm, I, I definitely do. Mm-hmm. I, I think at this point it's kind of hard to dispute the presence of human universals. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is language, mm-hmm. but... One of the standard ones that you'll get in an anthropology textbook is the concept of marriage. It's very hard to find a society that doesn't have marriage in some form. And in light of that, then, what do you think of new technologies that appear to be sort of disrupting a lot of the traditional trends, trends that we would uh, that seem to be human universals? In particular, you know, you're seeing lower birth rates lower marriage rates, higher divorce rates in most of the developed nations. Do you think that we're reaching a point where perhaps our our technological innovation is actually undermining a lot of our substrate culture that's helped us get along this far? Yeah, 100%. So this this is another huge research interest of mine. So just as a background, 
Back during the 1940s and 1950s, anthropology as a field was kind of in a bad situation. Mm-hmm. We, we had kind of this Boazian takeover that happened at the early 20th century. Now, Franz Boaz was this guy who pushed a, view, a worldview that we now call historical relativism. It's the idea that every single society needs to be viewed within its own historical trajectory, that the presence of universals is extremely rare. The primary anthropologist who kind of usurped this view was this guy named Leslie White in the 1940s and 1950s, and and he was a brilliant mind. He had the view that human social systems were really just a way of capturing more energy in the sense that organisms are designed for energetic capture. Leslie White saw societies as doing the same thing through the guise of technology. So one of the good quotes that Leslie White had when uh, he was kind of coming up with this system was, you have society as the dependent variable and technology as the independent variable. The idea being that as technology shifts, society is going to be forced to shift around it. Uh, This is something that, say, Nassim Taleb, you know, this kind of prolific what would you call him? Probability theorist. He, he would call um, <laughs> himself a, a prob- probability. Yeah. Pro- pro- his work is primarily in probability. Yeah. He, he like he likes to talk about these second order effects. And, and, and this is kind of what Leslie White was alluding to for much of his career, which is that with technology, you have so many secondary effects that come that come with technological evolution. A few people have kind of hinted on this. So for example, who was it? I think it was Janet Yellen, who was the chairman of the Fed, underneath Barack Obama, she had a very good paper that came out a little less than a decade ago called Technology Shock Mm -hmm. uh, and the End of Shotgun Weddings. The idea being that birth control actually created single motherhood in America for a lot of poorer communities. The idea being that when birth control came on, people started using condoms a lot less. While a lot of people didn't have birth control, the social norm then became to not use birth control at all, including condoms. And, and so then you had a rise in accidental pregnancies in a lot of poor neighborhoods, specifically in the uh, African-American diaspora, that, that led to this kind of single motherhood crisis that we're dealing with right now and have been dealing with since like the 70s, 80s, 90s. What's interesting is there are a lot of examples of this. Oftentimes, and and kind of what I've been trying to quantify is how it is that technology tends to change female choice a lot more, which then has a lot of deep impacts for society. There's this one cultural group, I think from Nepal, they're called the Magars. Mm -hmm. Now, the Magars, they had this system of arranged marriages up until, say, like the 70s when uh, male was introduced to the country. Okay. Shortly thereafter, you know, women figured out, oh, wow, you know, I no longer have to be stuck talking with people only in this valley. And they started arranging their own marriages thereafter. This is completely a side product to male as a whole, which ended up getting rid of the practice of arranged marriages for that cultural system entirely. The big one for me today that I've been thinking about is kind of the rise of this and I, I don't know how edgy you want to go here, is this inseldom crisis. Yeah, let's, let's get into that. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so, you know, there's this huge phenomenon, and I, I think it mostly started on 4chan, which is this idea of the involuntary celibate, you know, mm-hmm. this 
massive swath of male society that's kind of caught in the dredges in this idea that they cannot get laid even if they wanted to. Yeah, so to be clear, these are young men that would like to have sexual partners, and for whatever reason, uh, most likely in most cases a multitude of reasons, they're unable to find them. And, And then as a result of that, they've sort of developed a sort of underground, I guess, subculture, mostly on the internet as far as I understand it, around sort of their state of, uh, I guess, uh, affliction and dissatisfaction. And I mean, it, it's pretty sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> although although some of them, you know, it does get kind of, um, I, I mean, they have uh, interesting and kind of misogynistic worldviews, a number of them. Sure. But I guess, I guess that's more of incel as a cultural group rather than the incel phenomenon yeah well I, I guess i guess it's 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 important for the conversation that we delineate the difference sort of between individuals who may be stuck in this position mm-hmm. and uh, i guess those who would let's say identify themselves as incels as being part of some sort of movement right and the second one is probably a byproduct of the first but but they're totally different things or a subset of the first yes yes correct well so so uh, there's this question is, are there more incels than there were, say, 20 years ago? Uh, currently, to me, it looks like the data is kind of clear. Millennials, uh, Gen Z, uh, they tend to be having a lot less sex than, you know, generations that came before them. Yeah, as far as as far as I understand it, what they're calling the sex crisis mm-hmm. is actually afflicting both uh, males and females. And obviously, as you would as you would guess, from, from the literature on human sexual behavior, it's, it's afflicting males in a higher proportion, but it's, it's hitting both sexes. Yeah, correct. And they, and they say part of the reason why it's probably hitting both sexes is because just overall relationship counts are down as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and bizarrely enough, and I, I really don't know how to parse this uh, finding, you also find that those who are in a relationship are having sex less. I mean, do with that as you wish, but I, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, we can uh, figure out what technology we can blame for that. Oh, yeah, seriously, there's got to be something. But uh, so, so, you know, there's this question of why is it that these rates are rising? I, I think it's kind of clear that one uh, factor is the Internet. That's undeniably an issue. Another one is the rise of female college participation rates. You find that, you know, with more education – uh, women don't tend to want to settle down or uh, sleep around as much, ironically, based on, you know, stories you hear about college. Yeah. So uh, do you uh, how, how how relevant do you think is this concept uh, of, of female hypergamy? Oh, it's extremely relevant. Uh, can you just go over the terminology real quick? Yeah. So hypergamy is kind of this idea that women are going to date men who are, I guess, of a higher standing um, than, say, men on their own kind of social standing. Um, it's, it's just this idea that they're always going to go for the, quote, best males. And, and this, as far as I understand it, the way that it's been presented, I, I know from Jordan Peterson has talked a little bit about uh, the concept of enforced monogamy from an anthropological perspective mm-hmm. uh, and its relationship to this problem of hypergamy and really what it, what it is, is it's more like uh, females who are outsourcing computation to, to males, right? In that, mm-hmm. in that the males are left to compete for status, resources, whatever the, the 
primary driving factor is. And by leaving it to the males to sort of work out amongst each other who's going to be where in the hierarchy, and then they can just peel from the top. They don't have to invest as much energy into trying to figure out who the best uh, mates might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do do you find that plausible? Uh, Yeah, I find that very plausible. I also think that just in terms of speaking of forced monogamy, just... Uh, enforced, uh, not forced. Or, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Be careful thing. that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so enforced meaning there are cultural norms saying that you should be monogamous. Yeah, so rather societal ones. Sorry, the government's not handing you a GF. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, no, you don't get that. Yeah, no. I yeah. I think with the decline in that, you do find women. Well, I mean, they they have this illusion that there's more choice. Um, yeah. And, and what's interesting is that. Uh, there kind of is a difference in terms of the female strategy. It's it's not all the same for every single female. What you find is that for the highest uh, rated and attractiveness females, that they tend to be more monogamous than those on the lower end of the spectrum. It's that the women who are on the lower end are shopping around a little bit more mm-hmm. simply because they must. Now, the, the common, uh, I guess, animal, almost a stereotype at this point, gets that gets brought up whenever they're talking about, whenever people are talking about this is, I I believe the dolphins Mm. who have this situation where I believe the way that it works is it's impossible for them to know who the, who the, uh, the father of a particular offspring might be. And so because of this, the, the female dolphins tend to be extremely promiscuous. And the idea behind that is from a purely, game theoretic approach if a female dolphin has slept with many 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 male dolphins then uh the likelihood goes down that that male dolphin uh might kill uh their offspring because he's not sure whether or not he's it's theirs have you heard that before yeah i have heard that before And, and that example is also used in several human social systems you know aside aside from ours yeah so so there's this concept called partible paternity and it's this idea that babies are kind of built <laughs> piecewise out of sperm. So it doesn't matter who you get the sperm from. Just so long as you're having the sex, eventually you'll have a baby. So within the Amazon, something like 70% of tribes that are sampled have this belief that, oh, uh, you can have a baby who has many different fathers. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is the rates of infanticide actually don't go down for that which is kind of ironic. So oh, despite them all, yeah, yeah. So, so, so despite them all thinking, oh, this is partially my baby, it tends to be when the dominant provider dies, it kind of becomes clear what was going on there. <laughs> so let's, let's bracket this conversation uh, where it's at right now because it, it does mm-hmm. tie into quite easily uh, a number of other pathways that we could go down here. I want to return to uh, more closer to your original research interests, particularly the work of Leslie Alvin White. Do you want to explain real quick or, or go over the, the meta- metabolic theory of ecology? Yeah, so <clears throat> the metabolic theory of ecology is kind of this idea that everything can kind of be captured in energy exchanges. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you often see within, say, uh, behavioral ecology, which is just simply studying behavior in respect to the environment or just within many systems of 
human behavioral ecology is things like energy budgets. So uh, just looking at energetic output for a large number of things. In broader terms, the metabolic theory of ecology is this idea that a lot of things within the system of life can be boiled down to metabolic rates. So for example, things like lifespan are probably dependent on metabolism. Okay. And um, so are there other, uh, I guess, uh, significant correlates that we found with um, metabolic rates? I mean, obviously, they differ among uh, individuals quite, quite um, variably, as well as uh, I assume they would, they would differ among populations as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so one of the things that you find is that uh, things like lifespan are correlated with height. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's simply because uh, there is a metabolic component to being taller. You tend to actually use less energy as you get larger. Well, less energy poor per uh, unit capita. So sure. is for it- each unit of your body, you're actually just a little bit more efficient because you are larger. Right. This is R-selected R versus K-selected. You've got the mm-hmm. difference between, say, an elephant and a beetle in terms of its um, uh, the distribution of its energy required to to maintain its processes, mm-hmm. and so and so that that goes out to all kinds of different correlates. So things like uh, I said, height already, lifespan, um, different lengths of body parts. Um, you know, this is all part of uh, what's known as an allometric function, mm-hmm. something that is basically a byproduct of size for many cases. So, so have you read the book Scale by Jeffrey West? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, so Jeffrey West is kind of one of the fathers of the metabolic theory of ecology. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen several talks by him and his, uh, his co-workers, his co-authors, um, and, and they're all amazing. I mean, they're able to boil things down to uh, how fast should a organism be vocalizing to another vo- uh, organism based on its body size to... Uh, how many is that in terms of like a, a predator prey dynamic, uh, the vocalization rate? No, that's, that's specifically, uh, in terms of their body size. So, uh, you look at, so for example, within a normal, uh, vocalization that an animal puts out, it comes out at, you know, several, uh, thousand or several hundred Hertz a second. Mm Mm-hmm. So as the body size gets smaller, you're going to end up uh, pushing that into a tighter constraint, having more and more hertz per second. As the body size gets larger, you're going to have fewer and fewer. Now, Jeffrey West, in kind of linking this with Leslie White unknowingly, also extended this to human societies, looking at uh, the metabolic theory of ecology as it pertains to cities. Okay. Um, which is kind of one of the most bizarre things, because for years and years, uh, after Leslie White died, everyone said, oh, his research is bunk. You can't be making up these giant equations to explain how humans uh, trade energy with each other um, on an industrial level. Well, that's exactly what um, Jeffrey West, who um, is at the Santa Fe Institute, ended up doing. Mm. Um, so, so one of their papers, and I've used this a few times in some of my political work, is they take uh, what is effect- effectively a metabolic a function for city growth and measure that against say city performance. And this is, um, this is growth of a city's, uh, what population based on energy population. expenditure, uh, population. That, that's pretty much all it is. It's okay. saying 
what can we predict based on a certain growth in a population? So uh, let's say you have something like uh, 2 million people in a city. Mm-hmm. Um, when it doubles, how many more Chinese restaurants, gas stations, uh, churches, Walmarts, etc., should you have based on what it had before? Okay. And you can do this quite effectively. You'll, you'll, you'll find that this equation works very, very well. So these are, these are associations with uh, population density and, uh, I guess, markers for certain levels of activity? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Specifically population size. So right. you can look okay, at things size. like... Okay, mm-hmm. size. I wonder how that works out with density. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, you can look at certain things like uh, uh, let's, let's look at GDP or median income, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, the way that I use it is I've taken some of their equations and used it to measure city performance, which is pretty funny because you show up with these things and people are like, oh, where, you know, what does any of this mean? And you say, well, this is hypothetically, if this is a healthy city, um, as you would measure a healthy organism, uh, what your growth rate should look like with the doubling of population size. So so uh, let's go back to our friend Nassim Taleb a little bit. He's a really big fan of understanding that systems function, especially in particular complex systems, behave differently at different scales. In the context of this, is bigger always better? Is there some kind of trade-off? Do you want to grow at a, an ideal rate? What, what's, what's, uh, what's the deal with that? Well, I mean, I think it depends. So, for example, I'm in East Lansing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, here in, at Michigan State, one of the problems that we've had for – uh, decades now is just that we can't seem to get our our population density high enough. We have a mm-hmm. large university, we're a, a you know nationally recognized research university, but one of the gripes that a lot of the business leaders and you know real estate agents and so forth in the area uh, you know complain about is just that uh, people tend to sort of come here for college and, and then they leave, and we've got a little bit of capital that sticks around because of. Uh, the state capital being here and and the university, but beyond those two sort of bases of power, uh, we we never seem to be growing uh, like we'd want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things, and <clears throat> this is kind of the unfortunate side of things also growing, is that you do get a growth in bad things sure. um, as well. So, you know, crime can increase, uh, poverty can also increase. Um, it won't always a large number of things can happen. It, it's interesting what you say about East Lansing. I, I, w- I did my undergraduate at Florida State University in Tallahassee, kind of same situation, uh, state capital, uh, kind of one of these ephemeral college towns where people show up and then they flock away immediately afterwards. But, you know, th- there was something good in that, in that they were able to keep some kind of small local identity that they wouldn't otherwise be able to keep if people just flocked there and stayed there. You often think about things like uh, Austin or a few other cities that completely lost their identity the second they started getting big. Yeah, so so uh, again, like, like we were saying, you know, at each new scale change, you, you mm-hmm. have fundamental aspects of the landscape that are, are going to be totally different. You know, you're going to lose certain... Uh, kinds of identity, certain novelty. Um, do, do you think that in general you're going to see increased homogenization or do you think you'll get more diversity of culture? I think uh, increased homogenization is kind of the unfortunate track that we're headed down. Mm-hmm. Globally? 
globally, well, especially in the United States, yeah, in in Europe certainly. I mean, there's there's a lot going on with that. Uh, we could talk about that for days. <laughs> Do you want to steer uh, to to the other side of the pond real quick? Yeah, I mean, we can. Um, we can just generally talk about homogenization and a few other things. I mean, I've I've had some shifting beliefs on that lately too. Uh-huh. Um, well, just in terms of how sustainable is this? Um, so I read uh, uh, one one good intersection uh, for this podcast, given that it's supposed to be a political theory podcast, is mm-hmm. um, you wrote an article for, uh, I believe it was for Colette, called The Dangers of Dugan's Particularism, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, in which you talked about how Alexander Dugan, who uh, has his own sort of... Uh, uh, Russian, I guess, version of uh, of political theory uh, <laughs> that's how, how he is sort of in his attempts to sort of undermine uh, United States cultural hegemony. He sort of co-opted or I guess appropriated aspects uh, from anthropology, um, in particular, mm-hmm. the focus on cultural relativism as a justification for opposing the Western cultural dominance. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, so, so this is a major problem. I mean, one of the things that you often get into in a lot of anthropological circles is that there's a huge divide between those who uh, say they're scientific anthropologists and then those who are relativists. Mm-hmm. Um, this all played out in the science wars of the 1990s and kind of went into the early 2000s. And I, I, I feel, um, unfortunately for us, the relativists uh, have the ground, at least for the moment. For now, I, so I think in anthropology, the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. Um, people are going to argue with me on that for sure, but I just think the natural trend is for academic institutions to kind of swing on a pendulum because, because it happens time and time again that we go between relativism and then these giant, sometimes ridiculous, universalist ways of viewing things mm-hmm. and, then, and then back the other way. So do you um, – sorry to interrupt you there. Do you no, think, no, go ahead. Do you think that the internet and the rise of, I guess, new uh, new ways of doing uh, academics or new ways of doing research of science actually, things like you know the open science movement, et cetera, mm-hmm. are contributing to this sort of return to a more scientific uh, understanding of it, whereas before it was uh, a lot easier for the universities to stay entrenched in these kind of um, – uh, I guess ideological, uh, not not quite ideological bubbles, but you know you've heard of like citation rings, and obviously mm. people are quite familiar with the so-called squared hoax and, and things like that. Obviously, some fields, in particular in in the humanities, have gone really really far astray from anything resembling you know means testing in the real world. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, so and and I I think it is the case that kind of open science is. Uh, going to end up killing these this academic blow. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I always like to point out is that uh, when you look at just how knowledge is kind of commodified uh, throughout history, there's always this trend towards uh, bringing it into more and more closed hands. So in medieval Europe, this was the monastery system. For a long time, one of the ways that monasteries made money aside from their land holdings was specifically uh, through the loaning of books to other libraries, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, you know, uh, European political leaders, uh, copying the books down. Certain ones, you know, you could pay to come look at them, but they wouldn't send them to you. 
<clears throat> this is what we have kind of now in academia. Uh, but I always like to remind people what ended up killing the monastery system uh, was the printing press. Yes. I mean, immediately it got decentralized. Uh, the university system said, you know, okay, we don't need you guys anymore. Uh, and then the monasteries immediately fell into ruins because they could no longer commodify knowledge. I think that in the United States, we are seeing a push towards that. Some of the best theoretical quantitative anthropology is happening at the Santa Fe Institute. Yes. Um, you know, and as you know, they opened up to do nuclear physics. And now you have people going there saying, OK, I want to figure out uh, the network of, you know, this tribe in the Amazon to figure out, you know, how reputation spread. Mm -hmm. um, and they do work like that there. Um, that's stuff that uh, within the academy, you know, sometimes you'll be opposed because they'll say, oh, that's a little too reductive or something. So isn't that in some ways a return to the original aims of um, of sociology, which was primarily focused on networks? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sociology, <clears throat> sociology is kind of a beast of its own. <laughs> you know, we always had this running gag in undergraduate that we'd say, oh, we're anthropologists, but <laughs> at least we're not sociologists. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really starting to view it uh, the opposite way. Sociology kind of tack down a bunch of different quantitative ways of looking at things far before anthropology did. Um, I mean, so many different uh, cultural demographic analyses uh, happened. You know, uh, Emil Durkheim looked at rates of suicide in Protestant versus Catholic communities and was able to say, okay, um, it looks like Protestants are killing each other less because they don't have that Catholic guilt, <laughs> all yeah. kinds of weird things like that. But yeah, so I, yeah, I, yeah, I think I think that's kind of inevitable. What's going to happen to universities is they're going to devalue themselves, mm -hmm. and and I don't know if there's any way for them to protect it because they're no longer going to be the gatekeepers of knowledge. And again, yeah. this is due to technology shock. I mean, these second order effects from things like uh, LibGen, um, SciHub, mm -hmm. uh, people publishing in their own journals, the Broad Institute, just so many places getting fed up with this kind of lockdown system uh, that the second that you have this, you know, exit strategy out, you end up taking it. Yeah. So my, my interest in the last few years has steered more toward, well, originally I was working on, uh, I was, I was interested in, uh, disinformation and propaganda. Mm. And then that led me into areas of psychology, eventually artificial intelligence and a number of other, you know, subfields related to, to the, to those aspects, because I was trying to figure out Basically, you know, what's going on with the increasing polarization in our country, what's going on with, you know, higher likelihoods uh, or what appear to be higher likelihood of, uh, of political violence. Uh, and, and why is it that in particular in America, it seems that we're splitting off into two sort of really, really distinct tribes. And of course, some of that goes goes back to. Uh, I mean, we can bring up Charles Murray if, if you want, but <laughs> um, I actually haven't read read much of his work. But I know that he's he's very well known for his his work in in coming apart and talking about mm. um, that divide. And I think one of the problems that we're facing is, despite all of the promise of the internet uh, making knowledge more accessible, like you said, removing <laughs> a lot of these gatekeepers. One of the biggest issues is that there's almost too much information out there. And so mm -hmm. now you've got literally huge, and I, I, I witness this on Twitter all the time, where I'll find someone's profile and they'll have, you know, hundreds of thousands or sometimes even a million followers. 
and I know I, I, I'm in no corner uh, of their universe at all. Like nobody that I follow follows them. We have no mutual connections whatsoever. And suddenly I'm just discovering that, oh my gosh, like beyond the wall, there are just these huge meme plexes that I'm not even touched by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very pretty concerning. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I've been, I've been personally a lot, much very interested in, in the sense-making problem in our politics and, and how to approach it. And uh, trying to, to sort that out is, is part of what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate because I, I – okay, this is going to sound kind of classist, but this really is the way that I see the world. So one of the things is that I think that the political tone is ultimately set by the elites – in every nation. Mm-hmm. And right now is we don't really have, well, sorry, the elites don't really have a lot of confidence in their system. So, so they're, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to bring up, uh, are you familiar with the square in the tower? No, no. This describe is, that. I, I just want to make sure I get the author right because sure. he's a big name. And, uh, I, I for some reason I'm blanking on it. Niall Ferguson. Over at Stanford. Okay, yeah. yeah. Niall Ferguson wrote this book on networks called The Square and the Tower. And, and the premise of The Square and the Tower is essentially that in every major thing that's ever happened in human history almost, it's been, it's been done by a, ver- a relatively small group of very well-connected people in every society. And I think what's really interesting is that we're, we're seeing a lot of the activists and ideologues uh, clustering into, let's say, large tech companies, right? Mm-hmm. Because of their obvious uh, ability to sort of not only have a monopoly on information and control the flow of media, but also just the fact that they're sort of through natural monopolies that they've built for themselves, they're, they're almost immune to, to criticism. They're almost immune to their own shortcomings and faults because they've sort of, they're, they're in this sort of insular type of uh, strange economy that they've been able to establish. And I mean, that's network effects. They rule everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to to say that real quick because you were sort of implying that, uh, you know, this, this idea that the elites, uh, have sort of given up on themselves. I mean, um, I, I know I'm hearing this a lot from the likes of, uh, of Steve Bannon when he talks about how, you know, what he calls the party at Davos was mm. okay with sort of, he calls it managed decline of the American empire and mm-hmm. sort of just sort of ceding the mantle to China without really putting up much of a fight and really China progressively buying off more and more of the elites in this country that have uh, both cultural and, and real capital. Uh, that's obviously been a, a really, really big concern of mine. I, I'm still not entirely sure what, what, what to do about that. You know, obviously some things, uh, have been going on with the current administration in terms of trying to get our trade balance uh, back in order and imposing harsher punishments on them for doing things like filling our country up with fentanyl. But it seems to me like, yeah, you're right. If, if, the, if the people who are running things don't actually care about the future, don't actually care about the nation itself, I'm not sure uh, what what we're supposed to do about that. Yeah, I mean... So one of the few uh, 
ways that this has been fixed in history. Um, so, so my kind of scientific kind of political theory hero is this ecologist named Peter Turchin. Mm-hmm. And he looks at this from the view of what's called structural demographic theory, which is this idea that within each society you have different substrates. So it's classic, you know, class structures. But what he's looking at is specifically uh, those who are trying to be in the higher class, the elite aspirants, but aren't. Sure. And so what happens is that with high elite turnover, you're no longer sure who the elites are at that point. Exactly. Well, the, the sense is that our elites aren't even that elite. Anymore. No, that's correct. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that and, creates a and, lot of resentment. Yeah. And so so one of the ways that this has been kind of uh, picked in, or, or, or fixed in history is uh, by closing off the elites. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that's something that in America, we kind of we live in a meritocracy, right? But it's kind of unfortunate in that meritocracy is this double sided coin. I, I think there is a point where you have to be a meritocracy if you want to be the best. But on the other side, there is this kind of viewpoint where you have to recognize that the bad sentiments that come with it are kind of a political thing to be dealt with in of themselves. So oh, where was I going with this, with the uh, meritocracy? Yeah, so for example, like, uh, you look around the United States of America and you look at uh, upwards mobility for uh, uh, millennials and Gen Z, you know, mm-hmm. how is it that people are going to be richer relative to their parents? And yeah. we're finally seeing a point where in every single U.S. state, this is no longer happening. Yeah. Except for Utah. Uh, except which is for ironic. one of the states with with probably one of the the. I guess Utah, one theory that I would have would be that they have some kind of uh, cultural continuity mm. due to the strength of Mormonism there. Mm-hmm. And that might be might be helping them be less affected. I think that's what's happening, too. I, I, I hope to study. I kind of want to look at network effects there and see if part of what's happening there is that maybe they haven't found some sweet spot where, say you're not the best programmer or I guess in the case of the Mormons, a construction worker or construction manager, but someone ends up giving you the opportunity anyways. Is there a chance that you can end up picking up that slack that you otherwise would have lost, you know, and looking for jobs in ending up constantly, you know, trying to climb and climb? Mm -hmm. Is there this idea where you can have someone skip that process and just put them in a place where they can be doing pretty proficiently? Yeah, well, I think I think one person who has attempted to do this, uh, albeit with a very small and extremely elite group of people, is Peter Thiel in terms mm. of his with the Thiel Fellowship. Mm-hmm. You know, his idea, and and I know I follow Eric Weinstein a lot as well. His um, the managing director of his uh, fund, and they both are very insistent on this idea of like, look, stop making the millennials wait forever to be able to afford a life, right? To be mm. able to have respectable jobs and high status positions. It's, it's, you can't have a society where you have these, this aging class of <laughs> mostly boomers, but also some, some in the silent generation who are running for president, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just sticking around and, and never, never leaving their posts. Mm-hmm. You, you just can't build a society off of... Uh, or at least ha- a functioning society by keeping everybody as a groundling forever. Yeah, and you know, with that 
you have people who are otherwise productive, but uh, there's kind of this structure stopping them from doing so. And then you just end up with complete frustration. Going back to where we were talking about inseldom, um, it's kind of the same thing where you see with uh, sex. You know, you kind of have these frustrated classes that end up, you know, getting pissed off and, you know, shooting up some gas station or something like that. You know, that's not to justify the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is a trend that we see in societies outside of the United States. This is something you see when uh, the sex ratio is so skewed in a lot of tribal groups is you end up having more violence. You know, you have these lonely males that all they're doing is they're going around headhunting. Uh, one of the most famous examples of ethnography is specifically talking about headhunters who are these men who can't get laid. They just they just go out and they get frustrated and they don't know what else to do and they, they go and uh, chop off heads. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm of the belief that the traditional solution that societies have had for human throughout human history for an excess of uh, of unmarriageable males is uh, is warfare. And yep. so I don't see if if we don't solve that problem by getting uh, the people in my generation and your generation and underneath us, uh, uh, you know, the median guy, the ability to have some self-respect, have some dignity, have a hope of having a wife and, and maybe kids if that's what they want, then uh, they are going to turn their backs on the system and they're not going to they're not going to invest the way we want them to. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's pretty much that's that's the thing that I'm most scared of watching in the next, you know, 20 years or so is, is anyone going to take this seriously? Yeah. Well, and it's so Uh, hard to get people to take uh, the frustrations of young men seriously because it's, it's just the group that nobody wants to help out. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is this, kind of traditional argument that, you know, men have kind of been helping themselves for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, sure. But, you know, when a, a problem is nonetheless still a problem and you can't say, hey, incel, you know, deal with it. Yeah, uh, you, your, 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 your parents and your grandparents were so privileged, so now you have to, uh, you know, you can't be helped. Yeah. So now, so now enjoy yourself over there, whatever you're doing, you know, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's not very, it's not very stable logic for the future. Yeah. I'm especially worried about that. All right. Well, Cody, we are getting near the end of our time here and, uh, this has gotten a little bit, a little bit dark on the, on, on the last bit here. So I do have, I do have some fun questions to pitch you real quick oh, cool. while we finish up. And, and by the way, I'm not, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we are only planning uh, on going to the end of the hour, so I'm not going to take up too much more time. But I noticed on your blog, you have a widget on the side, which is the same picture of Stephen Jay Gold every day. Can you yeah. tell me what's up with that? <laughs> uh, so, so for a while, uh, I used to read Stephen Jay Gould a lot when I was in uh, grad school. So, you know, I had a bunch of office mates who they were all paleontologists. So, you know, they're obviously all about Gould. And so one day I kind of, just as a joke, made this uh, Facebook page that was the same picture of Stephen Jay Gould every day. And, oh, that's um, your page. That's my page, that's yeah. Hilarious. So I, I sent it to everyone and I said, hey, uh, look at this thing I found on the internet when really, you know, it was just me <laughs> screwing with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I had a lot of fun with that. I, I went for Halloween one year as uh, Stephen Jay Gould. Ah, uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was hoping to get into a little bit of the Spandrels of San Marco with you, sure. um, but I, I mean, do you want to cover that 
we can we can keep going or 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 we can yeah man i i no i got i got all the time right now uh this is your show so just you know keep running it if you want i i have no commitments after this all right sure so i was first introduced to this i guess historical or remarkable paper by oddly enough by brett weinstein he did an i believe a youtube video on adaptationism as you know, he sort of likes to float around in evolutionary biology circles uh, with this in the sort of uh, memes versus genes debate. He's sort of uh, stuck on this this argument that he has, which is that a lot of the memes that we have, specifically religion, are an example of uh, what he calls an extended phenotype. Do you want to go over just real qu- briefly the significance of this paper, the Spandrels of San Marco, and uh, how that relates to adaptationism? Of course. So <clears throat> the Spandrels of San Marco was this paper uh, from 1979 published by Stephen Jay Gould, who was a uh, paleontologist at Harvard, and uh, fellow faculty member Richard Lewontin, who was a geneticist at Harvard, in response to what was the ongoing movement of sociobiology. Mm-hmm. Sociobiology is probably one of the most uh, significant movements, academic movements of the late 20th century. It was kind of just the extension of biological principles to looking at social behavior. So that that kind of came about with this book published by E.O. Wilson in 1975. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book itself was rather uncontroversial. You can read it and find nothing that you'll argue with until you get to the last chapter where they say, hey, by the way, humans – and in, in that chapter, kind of, uh, E.O. Wilson goes through and he, he makes a few claims like, oh, homosexuality is probably due to males having to take care of their family rather than having children of themselves. Because once you have eight cousins, then you I've, have the I've equivalent heard the, of your own child. <laughs> I, I've heard the, the sort of priestly caste theory of homosexuality. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah, where where sort of you get these, these males that sort of uh, – are, they're outcompeted in some way, and then as a result of that, to make themselves useful to, uh, on a group selection basis, they take up this post as, in the priestly caste, and then they're able to provide status and resources to their family without necessarily needing to um, procreate. Yep, maybe that's something we can do with some incels. But <laughs> <laughs> so, so during that time, you know, a number of papers came out that. Uh, Gould and Lewontin didn't like, so so they wrote their own paper, mm-hmm. uh, which was the Spandrels of San Marco. Can you just Marco. go briefly, just go over the the main point of the paper? Mm-hmm. So what it is is that uh, in a cathedral you have arches. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the most decorated part of the arch is in the corner, which is kind of these little triangles that people end up adorning angels and gargoyles and things on. Mm-hmm. And people often ask, oh, you know, why 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 is that there? And they say, well. It's not there to be pretty, although that's what it looks like. It's there as an architectural byproduct. If you want to have an arch, you have to have a spandrel. And so basically what Gould and Lewontin say is they say, if you look at a number of different things in evolution uh, that look like they were adapted for, they actually weren't. They were byproducts uh, necessary in order to build something else. And so basically what they said was they said, uh, let's take a number of adaptationist hypotheses and tear them apart by showing that they are actually byproducts. And what do you, uh, specifically uh, with the term adaptationist, can you define that real quick? Yeah, so adaptationism is kind of this view that 
organisms are adapted or rather, sorry, optimized for their environment. Mm-hmm. So each time that you see a trait, you should say, okay, there's a reason for that. And the reason is this. Okay. Adaptationism itself is this school that Stephen Jay Gould uh, kind of argued existed in biology, which is, oh, <clears throat> I don't know what the cause of that trait is, but there must be one. And what adaptationists do is once they can't figure it out, they'll move to a next exp- explanation and they'll keep going through the list of different things that this trait might be used for rather than saying, wow, this trait wasn't actually um, a consequence of adaptation. It was due to something else. Now, this, this Spandrel's hypothesis, uh, mm-hmm. if you could call it that, it, is it synonymous uh, with vestigial structures or is there a difference there? So vestigial structures, so yeah, they're... They, yeah, so vestigial structures can be spandrels. Um, <clears throat> yeah, a good example is uh, if you look at Tyrannosaurus rex, mm-hmm. people often say, oh, its arms must be to, you know, mate with other T-Rexes or it must be due to, um, you know, being able to push itself up off the ground. Do push uh, Steven- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that is one of the claims. Um <laughs> And, and Gould says, no, if you look at the way that the uh, Tyrannosaurus rex's uh, um, axial skeleton is, which is uh, the spine and uh, arms and ribs and everything, he says, well, it just seems like um, this is a byproduct of you had to shorten the arms in order to get that body type in general. Um, in a sense, it is vestigial. Now, certain spandrels can become adaptive. Um, so things that necessarily didn't evolve for their purpose, but later adaptation took them over. Mm -hmm. Um, this is kind of important to think about because although something is adaptive in many cases, that wasn't why it came into an organism to begin with. Um, so, um, let me just, I'm trying to think through a good way of putting this into context. mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I guess let's just let's just uh, let's just try to find a a, a good example. Um, Brett Weinstein, in his argumentation, is making the case that there is some sort of adaptive advantage to religions. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stuck around, and otherwise, they wouldn't have been adopted by large groups of people and persisted through the centuries. Uh, would this mm-hmm. be an example of a spandrel? Uh, no, I think that's an adaptation itself. Okay. Um, a group adaptation. So um, the, the spandrels are more so than, uh, they're, they're results of adaptations that came before. And in order to make those adaptations, because we're necessarily constrained organisms, mm-hmm. uh, the constraints that we have, uh, brought about these sort of emergent elements. Would that be a way of saying it? Yeah. So for example, uh, the easiest spandrel to identify is the belly button. Mm-hmm. Um, it serves no functional purpose in adults, but in order to build an adult, uh, you have to have a belly button. Okay. Um, because that is where the you know tube connected to your mother. Um, but the belly button itself is not an adaptive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a byproduct of all of that. Or male nipples is another one. Um, there's no functional purpose to it, but in order to build a male, you have to go through that step and have that. Okay, so I think it's obvious to everybody that there are parts of us that we have that aren't necessarily um, adaptive or giving us some kind of advantage. But what's the what's the importance of pointing that out? Well, so the importance is that oftentimes people will say, 
And well, so the place where spandrels has been the most applied is in critiques of evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and this is, oh, I, go ahead. I, I know, I know. Um, sorry. Uh, you, you've talked a little bit about, um, evolutionary psychology has tends to have historically this approach of assuming that there are these, um, modules, right. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. exist, uh, for different purposes and that therefore our, our psychological, um, I guess constructs would be a way of saying it or operations are each a module for some kind of adaptive environment or landscape that maybe we're not in currently, but we would have necessarily had to have been in before. And mm-hmm. the argument that you're making in the spandrels is that, that, that there doesn't necessarily need to be a, a reason, right? Correct. Yeah. So a very good one um, that people bring up all the time is reading. Uh, reading is obviously an adaptive behavior. Um, you know, you can use it to write beautiful poetry. You use it to communicate all the time. You know, we were chatting on Skype before this and on Twitter. Um, reading obviously serves an adaptive purpose. But that's very different from saying that we adapted to read. Um, and, and this is where this distinction matters the most, because despite something being adaptive, that doesn't mean that that's the uh, historical means for which this trait arose. Um, there was nothing in the environment that, you know, said, okay, we need to learn how to read. Boom. Here are some genes for reading. Uh, we now, we can now read. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously a byproduct of our uh, symbolic uh, uh, behavior going back to semiotics. Yeah. So, so, so reading, reading is a good example of, mm-hmm. uh, of a spandrel that then turns out to be adaptive in a future environment. Yeah, correct, correct. And so, and so that, that process is called co-option. Um, so certain products can be co-opted by natural selection. Um, but, that, but that's, again, that's very different from saying that natural selection built that product. Okay, and now in terms of uh, where we started kind of at the beginning of this podcast in talking mm-hmm. about uh, the ways in which uh, our innovative capacity and our technological prowess appear to uh, be able to have this effect of, of undermining the fundamental substrate uh, that led us to the success that we have now. Do you think that uh, there will be a, a sort of adaptive way out of this conundrum? I mean, what, what do you think? Uh, I know Eric Weinstein talks all the time about trying to find a portal um, to sort of you know, mm-hmm. get to the next paradigm shift, whatever that, that might mean. Um, is it, is it, uh, are you, are you sort of, um, in a sort of fatalistic mood about, um, about, uh, I guess the, 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 the decline, uh, or I guess, um, the dysgenic effects of the world that we've built, or do you think that we will necessarily find our way out? Uh, so I was fatalistic for a long time. And then I was not fatalistic, and then I'm almost fatalistic again. <sighs> the black pill um, keeps coming back. <laughs> <it> just, <laughs> yeah, I keep on swallowing the black pill. Um, <laughs> well, so one of the things that uh, I used to always like was Steven Pinker, you know, he'll run mm-hmm. a few regressions and say, okay, look, things are getting better. Sure. Um, I think that's correct. But you kind of go back in history and you look at how empires form, um, things do get better within certain time scales. Um, but then they go back to collapse. Um, and this is kind of something that repeats in history. I do think that the development of Europe was a very different trajectory than the most of the world 
Um, but the yeah, thing that's is, that's an is argument that, that people don't like to hear these days. It is, but the thing is, is that the nice things that necessitated the Enlightenment, um, which could have led to the longevity of, uh, you know, I guess the world or at least the West, um, are kind of leaving us now. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, localism is now gone. Uh, one of the things that built the Enlightenment was the ability for thinkers to uh, not be bound to anyone and to be able to uh, switch places and patrons. You know, they, they weren't necessarily forced to think like everyone they wanted to. They could just switch to a different place and yeah. uh, do fine over here. You so know, the, people the, demise, able... the demise of anonymity, mm-hmm. of privacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the demise of having small-scale experiments in this world. Um, you know, this is kind of, again, the argument for localism is that you can try things out on a small level, see if it scales. Um, and then also, if you have different cultural systems, you know, <clears throat> that's one thing that people don't talk about in, in politics. But, uh, you know, culture kind of feeds back on personality, um, the way that people interact with each other. Certain policies can do well in certain places. Uh, democracy here versus other places, democracy in Iraq, where, you know, perhaps uh, people there might need some other different system for uh, regulating the type of culture that they have. Yeah, well, and, um, you, and you can you can get into dysgenic feedback loops. Oh, correct? of course. In terms of, um, you know, marriage, having children, reproduction. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. We, we just know for a fact that, for example, uh, there are there are some cultures where uh, um, interbreeding inbreeding is more common right mm-hmm. and uh, even perhaps socially accepted and that uh, clearly results in in those cultures uh getting left behind in some 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 sense uh compared to the ones that haven't adopted that of course but even so we have we have very good cultures that are going to die because they're not having babies <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean japan is um i mean <clears throat> i feel like that nation is on the way out you know and few years time. Wow. Um, simply because they're just, they're just not mating with each other. You know, they're going to go into a demographic sink. Mm-hmm. Um, demographic death spiral is what they call yeah. it. Yeah. Dem- demographic death spiral. Yeah. Do, do you think that, uh, I mean, obviously the, the solution for a lot of people in the West to this looming problem, which is, I, I would say almost universally acknowledged now, uh, seems to be, uh, you know, immigration from mm-hmm. other parts of the world. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think that that's a viable solution, or do you think that will just sort of contribute to the spiraling? I think um, so. A lot of people like to talk about how good skilled immigration is, and even unskilled immigration. Um, sure. That you know, bringing people in to take jobs, um, or sorry, to occupy jobs that Americans otherwise don't use, um, is fine. What, but but one thing I've always wondered is, you know, how many people do you talk to these days? Um, Americans, that is, uh, well, native-born Americans who, who, you know, maybe they, they went to college or something and they applied for a job and they were told they were uh, overqualified. <clears throat> I mean, we, we, we have a lot of talent here, uh, but I think it tends to get ignored just because you can pay uh, people who aren't expecting to make so much in their home country to come over here uh, <clears throat> and, and work for less. Yeah, I mean, um, Eric Weinstein keeps hitting, and I sorry, I keep bringing his name up. I tend mm-hmm. to float around in the IDW type circles. Yeah, uh, he just keeps making the point over and over again, and people don't seem to ever want to accept it, which is that there's no such thing as a long term labor shortage in a market economy. Yeah, and <laughs> and so he he had a very good blog post on that, and this was years ago. 
where he was specifically talking about uh, skilled labor in STEM. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, this thing is going to crash because we keep on bringing people. Yeah, it's his pet. And he said, look, this thing's going to crash because we keep bringing people from elsewhere and, you know, telling American talent that, you know, oh, learn to code or, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Yeah, or even then, or or, or just the fact that if you're in the natural sciences, Mm -hmm. your job Mm -hmm. prospects are, are, I'm, I'm sorry, but they're not very good. You'd think that they would be. Everyone's saying, oh, we need more STEM, we need more STEM. But really what they want is more computer scientists. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't hear anyone clamoring for, uh, for pure mathematicians or biologists uh, or even physicists these days. Despite, no, that's... Despite Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah, that's entirely true. I saw, I saw a job posting recently. It was, uh, I think it was like $8 an hour, master's degree required. Uh yeah in chemistry or biology, and it was lab tech, uh, right. literally autoclaving uh, day in, day out, um, with, you know, with this, this high-skilled degree that, you know, should get you a job somewhere that you don't. Of course, you know, the only thing in America where uh, people our age are even able to own a home is in the industry of construction. Um, construction workers, ironically, tend to be doing well here. The question is, is who's buying these houses? Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> one one bright spot in all of this is that the skilled trades seem to be doing fine, and they seem to oh, also yeah. be uh, rather immune to a lot of the effects of globalization and automation because they're mm-hmm. necessarily local, and the skills that they have uh, aren't easily translatable to machines. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to be one one bright spot that at least will give a large portion of the American uh, middle class and traditional working class some sustenance, uh, going forward. Yeah. And again, maybe, maybe we need to think about ways to deal with the, um, issues with elites. I, I wrote a piece for, uh, Arreo magazine when this, uh, for those who aren't aware, I think it was the ACT announced that they were going to start computing a adversity score uh-huh. into your results. This idea that, okay, maybe you didn't do so well, but uh, based on where you live, let's go ahead and say, here's your adversity score and factor that into your uh, overall report uh, for universities. And I said, you know what? At this point, just bring it on. Well, uh, we could go down <laughs> a really we could go down a really, really deep rabbit hole on um, on IQ and race uh, and the fact that the SAT is essentially a proxy for IQ. Um, but I think the the problem is actually a little bit a little bit more fundamental than that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not simply that uh, even if we could calculate somehow, quantify the amount of adversity you face in your life, which we can't. Sure. Uh, I, I don't know if just sort of giving out brownie points, and I don't mean to belittle anyone's struggles by saying that, but giving out brownie points uh, to someone for having faced hardship is necessarily going to be the problem or going to be a, a, a real solution uh, partly because of the fact that a lot of people who have faced extreme adversity have gone on to become some of the most, uh, you know, important, interesting individuals that we have. Yeah. I mean, it's not it's not that we're trying we're not. Uh, this is going to sound very um, almost cruel, but I, I don't believe that as a society we should be trying to cure hardship. No, I agree. Um no, we shouldn't be trying to cure hardship. Uh, obviously, we want we to should alleviate... be trying to locate talent. Yeah, and obviously, we want to alleviate circumstances for individuals who are so dragged down into the mud and just 
you know, beaten by the world that uh, they're having a hard time, you know, just, you know, making it. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I think that once you start um, going down that path where um, you're your circum where we where we say that the circumstances from which you came from matter more than uh what you're capable of here and now uh the whole idea of meritocracy goes out the window and once that happens uh it's it's really hard to get people to trust that the system will even do them justice yeah i mean i think that's true um but i mean i mean do you ever ask the question of what does it actually mean to devalue higher education though? I mean, on some level, yeah, it is kind of bad that, you know, people are getting into college easier, but on the other hand, if we stop selling people this story, Mm -hmm. uh, that you go to college, you get a degree and then you get out and get a job. If we stop selling people that story, maybe things will get a little bit better in terms of, uh, you know, elites and elite aspirants being so mad about their position in life. Well, so Uh, I guess I'm almost in my interpretation, I'm hearing a hint of accelerationism in your voice, uh, which is sort of like these universities are irrevocably broken. They're mm -hmm. corrupt. They're clearly uh, basically just handing out indulgences uh, and maybe they, we should just be fine with that. Is that what you're saying? I, I am kind of saying that. Um, I'm saying that we're at a point where higher ed needs to because I, they, needs to see what's going to be happening in a few years. I mean, I, there, does kind of, need to needs, be, there does need to be a purge, uh, and I don't mean a literal purge of, of people, mm-hmm. but there does need to be a purging of the sort of fake elites, right, in order for the real elites, the sort of what you would call natural elites, mm-hmm. to have any chance of uh, of reascending. You know, I, I think... Correct, yeah. If we are in a period... If it's true that we are in sort of a period of, I don't know if you would call it epistemologic or civilizational contraction, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, um, a lot of people are saying the fundamental problem is just that all the low-hanging fruit has been picked. Um mm-hmm then, you know, there is going to have to be some, uh, some shaking up and some moving around of uh, people, people that are in positions that they don't deserve to be in, uh, getting ousted, or, or, or institutions that are full of those people uh, finally crashing uh, mm-hmm. and being replaced by, by new ones that are actually established by, um, by, uh, by great people. See, and, and, and so that's, that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm less concerned about what happens to higher ed, and I'm more concerned about what's going on in companies like Google, uh, Microsoft, where they actually are trying to build things, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and they are getting rid of meritocracy on, on sort of a, a, a very, very large level. I mean, the whole thing with uh, James Damore that happened, I mean... yeah. It's it's just insane to think that this company is actually still making money, um, but you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was saying back back to my point earlier about these natural mm-hmm. monopolies. Yeah, they, they allow the the and I'll call it corruption. They allow the corruption to persist because they're insulated from the effects. It's 
uh, Nassim Taleb's lack of skin in the game. Mm, oh, yeah. Yeah, very good point. Mm-hmm. There's no absorbing barrier. Mm-hmm. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it, whereas in, in real industries where you face uh, actual competition and you might lose your job if you don't perform or the... I mean, eventually the, it, they will break down, right? I mean, eventually the code won't run if, mm-hmm. if they stay on mm-hmm. this track. Is It seems to me like they've done a pretty decent job so far of partitioning the companies internally where they still have relatively high demands for their engineers, but other areas of the company like HR and these sort of softer areas are uh, much more amenable to sort of lax recruiting. Would that be a fair assessment, you think? No, I I think that's completely true. Um... I mean, I, I just know that a few years ago, especially like when I first started college, uh, it was a big deal if you got a job at Google, regardless, yeah. regardless of what you were doing. It, it didn't matter if you were a programmer or not. If you got in the door, it meant something. And now, um, I mean, I just I, I know people personally who are just very, very mediocre individuals <laughs> who work at <laughs> some of these big tech companies. And it really uh, it really starts to shatter the, the illusion. It becomes like a Wizard of Oz type effect. Yeah. Yeah. You start to get a little bit behind the curtain and you realize that um, a lot of these companies, partic- Google in particular, as the, I guess the prime example, they, they kind of stumbled on um, a really amazing algorithm and it's allowed them to stay 10x better than uh, the next best thing. And that's going to keep getting them profits for probably the next couple of decades. And it's going to take a long time for that machine to slow down, even if, it's, oh, yeah. even if they're throwing sand in the gears. Yeah. How long can they rent seek? <laughs> right, right. Um, okay, well, we're, we're, we're getting near the end of this here. I do want to just bring up uh, one cool quote that I got from you. Uh, you and I, we, like I said at the beginning of this chat, we, we met on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's primarily how, how we're friends. And um, uh, to be honest, uh, you're one of my favorite connections in terms of um, you know mutuals who I interact with on there. And I've been able to... From uh, from the small town of East Lansing here, uh, get in contact with a lot more um, interesting minds and thinkers and people like yourself through Twitter. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, but a while ago, I was I, I was posting uh, this gripes about cultural relativism, and I think I said something along the lines of uh, <clears throat> uh, something like, uh, you know it's impossible to judge which culture is or no something like we can't say which cultures are better than others mm. something along those lines um you know very sort of sarcastically uh mocking these sort of postmodern notions and you gave me a quote that i stumbled on again in one of your articles from ruth benedict on cultural relativism and she said uh all cultures have a light grown up blindly the useful and cumbersome together and not one of them is so good that it needs no revision and not one is so bad that it cannot serve, just as ours can, the ideal ends of society and of the individual. And that really stuck with me. Um, because a lot of the times, uh, especially in circles like ours, where people are noticing some of the core problems in, in our culture today and the excesses of the elites, uh, they try to make these sort of traditionalist uh, claims, these arguments about sort of the superiority of American culture or European culture, or even if you're Steven Pinker, I, I, I would argue he tries to trumpet the Enlightenment 
as uh, something in particular to be um, respected. Not that I have any problems with the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that, that, that quote stuck with me in part because it's a little bit dissatisfying. Um, mm. It's a little bit dissatisfying in that uh, it, it sort of seems like she, like, like Benedict here is, is pointing towards, again, this, this uh, Western obsession with being self-critical all the time and that we can't mm. ever be proud of ourselves because, look, we have our own problems too. Look, we're also bad. What, what is your take on, on that, that quote? Well, you know, I, I kind of liked it simply because um, I like to throw it back at other anthropologists who say that we can't talk about other cultures um, and the problems that they have. The anti-relativist relativist mm-hmm. anthropologist. Yeah, correct. I mean, oftentimes you'll, you'll be chatting with someone and you'll say, well, you know, it's maybe you, you know, shouldn't throw your babies into a fire. And they'll say, oh, well, that's just their practice. And it's like, no. I mean, I, I, I should be able to say cultures sometimes do things that are not so beneficial. Um, and and the, if we can say it about ourselves, then. The, the Alexander Dugan retort is, of course, fine, you're a cultural relativist. Well, then you can't tell me, you know, not to act badly. Exactly. I mean, it opens the door for postmodern fascism you, at that you point. Say that I'm, <laughs> you say that I'm sexist and racist, but what if that's my culture? Exactly. You know? um, and, and he's operationalized that quite well. Yeah, quite well. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Cody, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. Uh, It's been absolutely uh, a blast for me. I I really loved it. Yeah, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, so if anyone's interested in some of the stuff I've talked about, I mean, just look into uh, Peter Turchin um, for some of the stuff on elites and Jeffrey West for stuff about scaling theory and uh, what happens in cities. Um, but yeah. Oh, uh, and, uh, one last thing before you go, uh, I want to plug you real quick. Where can our uh, listeners find you? Uh, so I'm on, uh, Twitter at, uh, LTF underscore zero one. Um, I also have my blog, which is culturologies.wordpress.com. Um, is that my phone going off? <laughs> Sounds like it. Um, yeah, so I'm also, I'm also on my WordPress blog at culturologies.wordpress.com. Um, and I, I link to some medium posts I have on there and, uh, different things that I write. Um, so you can find me there. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.